WDBM East Lansing. The impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. On the show tonight, we'll be talking about the future of coal at MSU, as well as alternative housing and a 40-year Michigan murder mystery. That will be for the Michigan Storytelling segment. But first, news today. In world news, partial results from Tunisia suggest victory for the moderate Islamist party in Nada, the first democratic elections prompted by the Arab Spring uprisings, according to the BBC. The Electoral Commission said Nada was well ahead in the vote for a new assembly that will write a constitution and appoint a caretaker government. The polls were Tunisia's first democratic elections and followed the fall of President Zine Alabine Ben Ali, who was overthrown in January after mass demonstrations. He had been in power for 23 years. In national news, boys should be routinely vaccinated against the human papillomavirus, or HPV, in an effort to protect them from oral, anal, and penile cancers and to extend protection of girls of cervical cancer. U.S. vaccine advisors said today, according to Reuters, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, which advises the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, voted unanimously to recommend routine use of Gardasil in 11- and 12-year-old boys to fight the sexually transmitted virus with 13 yes votes and one abstination. Abstention, excuse me. And in Michigan news, Michigan's film industry will take center stage before a state Senate panel tomorrow, according to Michigan Radio. The Economic Development Committee is expected to discuss a proposal, uh, proposed new funding structure for rewarding film companies that want to shoot in Michigan. Senate Majority Leader Randy Richardville said a generous film tax incentive program under Governor Jennifer Granholm's administration was not sustainable, but he said it helped in initially attract the movie industry. Governor Snyder approved a less aggressive $25 million grant program for film projects, but the state film office stopped taking applications earlier this month, saying there were no no rules for projects to qualify. The Richardville legislation would put those rules in place. And now in the studio is the local band East Harvest. They are here to talk about their music and perform for us. They are also having a show here in East Lansing's Wanderer's Tea House this Friday at 7 p.m. Welcome to the show, East Harvest. Thank you for having us. What's up? So can you guys introduce yourselves and what you do? Um, My name is Adrian Sanchez, and I am the singer the lead vocals songwriter of the group. I'm Connor Ralph. Um, <clears throat> I play djembe uh, and also uh, sing um, harmonies and everything and, and get in on a little bit of lead vocals here and there. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's about it. Yeah. We actually have five members total. Five members total. Mm-hmm. Um, we have Connor's brother, Spencer, who plays the bass. Mm-hmm. We're up at the bass. And uh, then we have our friend Jordan Otto, who is killing it on percussion as well and then his brother who's also named connor and he uh helps us out with harmonica so it's a it's a solid group so we get a little acoustic set tonight mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so how long have you guys been around for and how did you guys form um i've been writing since high school and uh i transferred here and um met connor and you know, we just we were in the hallway and we sang Alias by Dispatch and we were singing harmony together and then we were just like, Man, we should just jam out one day. And so we went to the park and we played some of our own stuff and you know, added the harmonies and everything, and then we found out we were gonna live to, in the same West Circle dorms and stuff and we did open mics together and then from then on out, um people liked us at open mics and we just kept the thing going and expanded by adding some members into it, and here we are today. Can you guys talk about your musical backgrounds? Well, I'll we... take, I can take that first. Yeah. So I can break up the monotony. <laughs> um, I, uh, I started out super into um, reggae and, uh, and stuff like Dispatch, you know, vocal music, because reggae is primarily vocal music, a lot of it, you know, a lot of it's repetition other than the vocals, and and so uh, I was a singer, and I was always into things like Dispatch and, and reggae and, and um, you know, Dave Matthews Band, and a lot of stuff like that, um, a lot of vocal music, and um, that's 
basically influenced my former band. We were called Res Publica, and we, we still play sometimes. But um, the, and and that and I think a lot of that band um, came in a little bit with with Adrian's sound mixed with his kind of you know lighter acoustic sound and kind of you know influenced um, us to uh, to be I don't know a little bit a little bit more um, I don't know aggressive maybe yeah Some, cause, uh, somewhat yeah because I grew up. And I fell in love with R&B mm-hmm. and the good kind, you know, 90s, <laughs> you know, the quality lyrics, you know, it meant something back then. And mm-hmm. there's some class to it. And um, and I just loved it. By the same time, I was studying classically in high school and did the whole solo ensemble deal and, you know, loved singing in choir and ended up going to college and for music and studying, currently studying opera. And we're both actually... MSU students as voice double majors, voice performance and music education and singing opera. And here we are, you know, doing our own thing. Very vocally driven music. (laughs) So how do you balance studying classical music and being able to perform? Should ask our professor. (laughs) Uh, We're we're still, uh, we just try to keep it safe. You know, we know our priorities are with the school and with the operas. And yes, we love it. You know, we love both you know both sides of our music life but um you know at the same time we got to be careful in order to make both of them work and because we want both of them work to work and mm-hmm. and so far i think we're managing that pretty well and we're having fun progressing in both areas and mm-hmm. and just gonna hope to continue that, that we're way. not too we're not too hardcore here i think if it was more of a you know like, like in my former band that i was in i was a little bit more i mean it wasn't screaming by any said by any means but it was it was a little bit more aggressive singing, and that I had a hard time with. This not so much. I don't go into a lesson with you know losing my voice, you know having mm-hmm. lost my voice at a gig, you know doing this. So it's really not not very hard, I would say. Well, without further ado, I'm sure our listeners are begging <laughs> to hear a song from you. So, can you play a song for us? Yes, we will uh, play. I'll try for you.
the studio is Adrian and Connor. They are representing the local band East Harvest. They will perform at Wanderer's Tea House this Friday. Show starts at 7 p.m. Wonderful job, guys. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So I'm curious. Um, what We were talking, you guys are, are classically trained musicians. You're, you're vocal performance majors and music ed at the College of Music here. Do you think that your education in classical music helps or hinders you when it comes to writing songs like this? Well, I think the degree helps um, just because I'm being exposed to theory, music theory and ear training and all that. And um, with both of us undergoing that and our whole band, actually, um, we understand harmonies. We understand when the song needs that, you know, that change. And so we look at, um, I think it enhances our writing, actually, and just understanding, like, you know, how can we make this next section different? Where can we take the song tonally to a new place that's going to attract the ear to listen to the next, you know, 20 seconds of it, you know? And also being around great musicians all the time uh, is, is helpful. I mean, not, you know, most classical singers, you know, I guess aren't, aren't really songwriters, but, you know, you, you hang out around the jazz kids and stuff and you hear their, their, in, your, their input on mm -hmm. your stuff, and I think that, that, that helps a considerable mm -hmm. amount. Definitely. So, yeah. And can you guys talk about the songwriting process? That's all that guy. <laughs> um, I have writer's block. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I just, um, because I'm, like, self-taught on guitar, this is, like, my second year on the instrument, I um, have to figure out, you know, something on guitar that is appealing to me to play. And um, once I have that whole thing down, then I'll think of, Oh, I'll find a mood or be in a mood that'll just like fill in that um that music and then I'll start writing and um once I have a song down, I'll uh, bring it to Connor and be like, yo, let's jam this new track out and um we'll go over it a few times, he'll add the harmonies and then I'll give the chord you know, the lead sheets to um his brother uh for a bass and then Sometimes I'll, like, record it all myself on GarageBand, you know, do harmonies myself, which is always <laughs> weird for my friends to hear. And, um, you know, and then it'll give something for them to, it'll give them something to, you know, look at and refer to when they're trying to learn the song before a show or something. And um, just to help us stay more tight when we're so, we're all so busy with, mm -hmm. you know, just, you know, opera rehearsals, classes, work, everything, you know, everything, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's the, the chords come first in the songwriting process. It's not the words or the lyrics or a feeling. It's the chords for you. Yeah, for me, yeah. And, of course, I'm not going to just, like, write anything for those chords, you know. Like, if the, the chords, you know, have a certain mood, and if one day I'm in that actual mood that fits it, then... The song can continue on in its process. Until then, I just come up with more chords to work with for other, you know, other ideas and whichever mood works with that. Then, respectively, yeah, I'll go there. So I noticed you guys perform at Wander's Tea House quite a bit, mm -hmm. and you will also be there again this Friday. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about why you choose to play at Wander's and who you usually end up playing with at your shows? Who else comes along, I guess, to perform? It's close for one. Yeah, uh, it's right on campus. And we live in West Circle Complex, which is right, literally, you know, a couple of blocks from the place. And so a lot of our musicians and, you know, a lot of the people we know at the music school can come out. And, uh, and it's just really accessible for them, mm -hmm. uh, and which is, you know, a large part of our crowd. But we've been starting to get a lot of people from, uh, from the union, actually, when we play at open mic nights, which we also do if you guys uh, frequent the union, any of the listeners out there. Uh, we'll, we'll play at the union, and we've gotten uh, quite a few, actually, um, you know, people attending from there. And so, you know, basically it's just, it's just a, you know, um, the approximation to where we live. Yeah. And we have a lot of friends, you know, in the jazz department that, um, they're also in other groups outside of their own jazz octets or big band. And, um, we have the whiskey pickers, uh, share the bell with us, which are, you know, a sweet bluegrass group, folky group that, um, they've been playing around lately. And, um, we've recently had, um, and will have uh, my friend Ben Forg, who I work with at Cozy, and you know we, I found out he did music, and I checked him out, and I'm like, yo, come, open for us sometime, and mm -hmm. he's been a great, a great person to add on the bill, and great, um, definitely a great starter to get into us and our acoustic sound, and uh, um, 
later on we'll have you know other musicians like Ben Rivet or aka BJ SR. He's and, been on the show before yeah, here. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know he's a great guy, and um, we've I've spoken with. Jetty Ray, who's an Ann, Ar- Ann Arbor-based musician who's doing well right now and touring out there. And um, hopefully we'll do a project next semester to bring her in. And, you know. Cool. Well, without further ado, will uh, you guys be willing to play another song for us to take us out? Yeah, why not? Absolutely. We will do um, one of our earlier favorites, Questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hope the light is on for a reason I hope this is meant to happen I hope she's the one Are we something she would call right? Are we something more than nice? Are we some diamonds in the rough? It's times like these When I feel like I need to run But why should I doubt myself With all of these questions? studio was Connor and Adrian representing East Harvest. They perform at uh, Wonders Tea House this Friday at 7 p.m. Adrian, you're making a face. Okay. Well, 
Maybe we should. You want to say something about the what, your Facebook before you get off? Of yeah, we uh, have a Facebook page in case y'all want to like us officially. Into the likes <laughs> officially like Very us. Into the likes. And uh, Facebook.com. All right. <laughs> East Harvest, thanks so much for coming yeah. in. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Smoking Helpline. Yes, I need to start smoking right away. Excuse me? I need to start smoking. Well, actually, it's the Stop Smoking Helpline. The people in the apartment next to mine smoke three packs a day, and it drives me crazy. So I'm thinking four packs will do it. I think you want MySmokeFreeApartment.org. It gives you the information you need to work toward a smoke-free apartment building. A smoke-free building? Without all that smoking? Uh, yeah, that's right. Make your apartment smoke-free without making a stink. MySmokeFreeApartment.org. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Wednesday nights from 8 until midnight, it's the Impact's Accidental Blues, your source for great blues music, news, and concert information. Only on Impact Primetime. Hola, my name is Esperanza. After a tragic incident, I was forced from a life of riches in Mexico to a life of poverty in the United States. My mother has become ill and we have become separated from our family. Now I must work for both of us to try to bring the rest of our family together. My name is Esperanza and I am trying to survive. Explore new worlds. Read my story in the novel Esperanza Rising by Pam Muñoz Ryan. For other great book ideas, visit your local library or log on to literacy.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Art Council. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. It's about that time of year where MSU students start thinking about housing. In the studio is Tamiko Rothorn, Anel Gell, and Corey Herney to talk about some alternative housing options in the Lansing area. Welcome to the show, everyone. Hi. Hello, Thanks for having us. So I guess, can you go around and introduce yourselves and, and uh, who you're with, I guess? Uh, my name is Corey Herney. And I live in the Student Housing Cooperative here at MSU. I live in the David Bowie Memorial Cooperative. I'm Tamiko Rothorn, and I live in the Genesee Gardens co-housing community in downtown Lansing, about eight blocks from LCC, um, right downtown. My name is Anel Gell, and I also live in the same co-housing community as Tamiko. So it's the Genesee Gardens co-housing community. So talk about what is the Genesee Gardens housing community? Well, um, co-housing is a type of intentional community, and people have a lot of personal space because they own their own homes, usually. Um, we do have some renters as well. Um, but it's a type of community where we share some common elements, like we have a common garden, we have a common house, and we have meals there together, um, we have tool bank that we share, we have a playground area, we have a picnic area, and we just recently acquired chickens, which has been really fun for some of our uh, co-housing families and their children. So we have some shared space and we also have some private space, but it is a type of intentional community. So how many houses are involved? Um, there's about six houses right now. Uh, we have ten adults and about five kids. And that number fluctuates as people move in and out. Um, it's not the typical type of community where it's limited and we, we know exactly what the boundaries are. Um, because it's retrofit, that means um, we acquire houses as they become available for sale um, or as people are moving out. Um, but we also have contact with the rest of our neighbors because we are in, a, in an existing neighborhood um, in the Genesee neighborhood. So is it basically like you have different families that have their own house and then you guys can all share resources? It's not kind of like a student housing co-op where you have you know, almost strangers living together at first that share things, but it's more like you have your individual families in their houses and you guys share resources. Right. So most of the members live in their individual homes. Um, in our common house, we typically have more students in there because it's much more affordable to live on the upper floor of our common house. We have three bedrooms, and Anel is one of the students who's actually living in our common house right now. And what is that like? Um, it's really nice. Uh People are always in and out of the common house. Uh, we have a laundry um, and a uh, sorry, a washer and a dryer downstairs. So usually someone's always coming in and using it. We also have potlucks every Friday. So um, my doors are open to everyone. It's not my doors, you know, but it's the, the common house. Um, 
So uh, it's it's really nice. Um, people are usually in and out, and this is usually when uh, where we meet uh, for meetings or for any sort of event. So. In, in what are the biggest challenges, do you think, that this, um, what do you call it, co-op co housing? No. Co-housing. Uh, co-housing. Co-housing. Mm -hmm. co co what, what are the biggest challenges that this brings? Well, I'd say one of the biggest challenges for our community is what I mentioned earlier. We don't have a clear boundary of where that community um, begins and where it ends. Um, so that's probably one of them, not having defined boundaries. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's just, you know, getting ourselves um, motivated or organized to do the garden work, um, although most of us really enjoy being out there. We do make decisions by consensus, and so if you're familiar with a consensus decision-making process, it takes a while for people to agree um, and talk through everything, but usually the end result is really better than any of us could have imagined individually because we all put our heads together um, to create something even better. So, Corey, can you talk a little bit about the student housing cooperative here at MSU? Uh, yes, uh, we are we are governed by a larger um, governing organization called the SHC, and we currently have 14 houses in the system, soon to be 15, with the inclusion of Howland House uh, down on MAC. And um, everyone's a part member of the system, so everyone essentially owns part of the organization. So everyone has about one two, one two hundredth of a of a part stake. And as you mentioned, we, we kind of all live and we kind of come in these houses with strangers and we come out basically families. And, and how do they, how does the co-op system function? Let's say just at the house level, at the house level, um, we assign jobs, you know, to help the house run. We have simple things like sweeping and mopping the floors. Um, we have more, um, we have other jobs like cooking. We, uh, over at David Bowie, we have five meals a week and, um, two people per night cook in our house. We don't outsource for a cook. We, it's all in the house. And uh, there's other jobs, um, leadership roles like education, which they serve on the education committee, which deals with the Pine Press and um, other community events. Like we're soon planning a, a Red Cross event. Um, and then we're then there's other roles like membership, which deals with interpersonal um, issues in the house. And then there's the um, board representative, which I do in my house, and I serve on the board of directors for the SHC. And how would you compare or contrast a co-op from, let's say, a frat or a sorority? Um, probably the biggest difference is that um, our governing body is not some national organization. While there are um, kind of a hierarchical element to co-ops, like we're part of NASCO, um, we're not necessarily owned by NASCO. We own ourselves. Our, um, our kind of our mantra is we own it, and we technically do. So unlike... Um, a frat where I'm not exactly sure what a frat does, but they're uh, they're part of a national governing body and they have to follow their codes. We set our own. So um, we more or less are more central and local. So I'm, I'm curious, we're talking about uh, student housing co cooperatives and, and co-housing opportunities. So where do these types of systems, where can you usually find them? I, I'm, I'm curious, um, uh, Tamiko and Anel, where, where else do you, can you find co-housing communities? Well, actually, there are several co-housing communities all over the country. There are some new builds in Ann Arbor. It is so popular, they've developed three co-housing communities there now. Um, you can go to um, cohousing.org and learn more about co-housing communities and what openings are available in different states. Like if you were graduating and you were going to move to another state and you were interested in that, you could you could look at that kind of opportunity that way. Um, yeah, there's a lot on the Internet these days. There's also and, an and international it, it, co, uh, communities. I think cooperatives are in that, co-housing, mm -hmm. the whole spectrum of community living. And are you the only one in Lansing? Oh, as far as we know, yeah. we're the only co-housing community in the Lansing area. And um, where can people go for more information about student housing cooperatives? Um, they can go to the NASCO website, and they can. we also have, I believe, links on our website. Um, there's a... There's co-ops across across the nation. Two prominent ones. We, I mean, there's one in Ann Arbor as well, and I believe there's um, one stuff starting over in Western. And I, there's talk of um, co-ops starting in Detroit with Wayne State. But the biggest names probably in the country are down in Austin, and then there's the Berkeley co-ops. They're all over. Well, wonderful. Well, in the studio, we have uh, Tamiko and Anel uh, representing the Genesee Garden Housing uh, co-housing community, as well as uh, Corey from the MSU Student Housing Cooperative here at MSU. Thanks so much for joining us tonight.
Thanks for having Thanks, us. Thanks, Emily. Thank Thanks for having us. And uh, up next, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Impacts um, Anna, or excuse me, uh, Ayana Sh uh, Schrader has this report on how domestic violence impacts people across the globe. For MSU sophomore kinesiology major Priscilla Lopez, the danger of domestic violence is very clear. Lopez is a former migrant worker from Hartford, Michigan. Her sister Maria has been a victim of domestic abuse since Lopez was in middle school. And then that's when I kind of started noticing that she would have bruises or she had, like, her lip was busted and she couldn't explain why. She would say it happened at work. Lopez said she thinks her sister stayed with her husband out of fear. He gets away with so much stuff that it's kind of like, I could see why she fears that he'll come back. Because I feel like he'll come back. And I think, uh, to an extent, he has threatened her life. Director of MSU Safe Place, Holly Rosen, said, If someone is using tactics like abuse, threats, or silencing in order to demand power and control over another person, this is considered an abusive relationship. A lot of victims don't know that they're victims of right. relationship violence. Domestic Violence Awareness Month started as a day of unity in October 1981 conceived by National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. In 1987, the first Awareness Month was observed, and that same year, the first national hotline opened. During this month, programs such as MSU Safe Place, End Violent Encounters, or EVES, and Capital Area Response Effort, or CARE, hold domestic violence awareness events. One event is the Candlelight Vigil at the Michigan Women's Hall of Fame in Lansing, where the community honors victims and survivors of domestic violence to just do different programs to increase awareness about this issue. It's a difficult topic because it's the invisible crime and it goes on behind closed doors and so very few people are even aware of the impact on their environment. Even when people are aware of the impact of domestic violence, mistrust and cultural differences can create barriers. A lot of people from other countries do not trust law enforcement. They, they don't trust programs like MSU Safe Place because they think that we're going to report them, um, They, especially if they're here illegally. I think one of the biggest barriers that we have found to responding to people from the international culture, different communities, is their assumptions that we want them to get a divorce. And if they're not ready for a divorce, they don't even want to come to safe place. Here in mid-Michigan, victims from different countries have a diverse set of reasons to avoid addressing domestic violence. Lopez's sister, Maria, lives in a migrant worker camp community where domestic violence is a norm. In the camp we lived in, you would see bruises on other women. But a lot of these people are come directly from Mexico, like the culture where, like the machismo and stuff, where it's okay for a man to hit his wife. Like the older generations see it as okay. Like divorce. No, that is not, that doesn't happen. So... Because I, we were in a community where a lot of these people came directly from this this um, mentality and mm -hmm. this idea, they never said anything. Director Rosen says this is the month to speak up. Domestic violence is all around us, and if anybody is dealing with it or wonders if someone they know is dealing with it, that they can always call MSU Safe Place or EVES or other programs. For Impact Exposure, I'm Anjana Schrader. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Three MSU students were arrested for trespassing into President Luana Case Simon's office last week. Their goal was to convince the administration for MSU to transition to 100% clean energy. To talk about the arrests is Tori Wong, as well as Eric Price of MSU Beyond Coal, and Lauren Olson of the Office of Campus Sustainability. And she is here to talk about MSU's energy transition plan. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you. Hello. Thank you for having us. So first off, um, Eric and Tori, can you tell us a little bit what happened last week? Yeah. Uh, so I'm Tori, um, and I'm with MSU Beyond Coal. Last week, uh, MSU Beyond Coal met with President Simon and some of the administration, um, President Simon's um, assistants, um, Bill Beek. Beekman and Kathy Lindahl, um, and we were given an answer that wasn't very suitable to us um, about our goal for, for the semester and retiring the T.B. Simon coal plant, the largest on-campus coal plant in the whole country. Um, so following that meeting on Wednesday, we uh, actually ha we had a flash mob dance rally outside of the administration building um, demanding 100% clean energy and a coal-free commitment from President Simon. Um, and then Thursday, 
uh, seven members of MSU Greenpeace, um, which is not actually affiliated with MSU Beyond Coal. We are two separate enti- entities. Um, seven members of MSU Greenpeace went up and sat in President Simon's office for two hours and read off the names of all of the students from student petitions that they'd collected over the past two years um, who are demanding a coal-free campus. So you were saying that you didn't like the answer you received from President Simon. What do you mean by that? Um, so we went into President Simon's uh, office and we met with two of her assistants on Monday and we were asking for a directive from President Simon to retire the TB Simon coal plant. Um, and we were told that that is not something that President Simon can do um, because of the process that has put, been put in place. And we are asking President Simon to to make that directive to the steering committee um, to to retire the largest on-campus coal plant in the country. Now, I I read um, a press release from MSU Greenpeace that said that our coal plant is the largest coal plant in the nation. Is is that true? I guess I want to throw that to Lauren Olson here from Campus of Sustainability. Well, most universities don't generate their own power. It just so happened that when um, Michigan State University was formed and some of the other Big Tens were formed, like Iowa, um, for example, University of Iowa, that they have their own biomass facility, we have our own um, coal facility, that there wasn't any energy plants around, so they decided back in the day to just build their own <clears throat> coal plant. Um, and uh, some fun fact that I usually tell at the energy transition town halls is that actually, since our coal plant is cogeneration and produces steam, and the byproduct of which is electricity, that steam was first used to heat and um, the residence halls because they were having fires due to the fireplaces. So it was put in place just because they really needed to heat those um, residence halls or dorms back in the day. Um, so that may be true that MSU has the largest on-campus coal plant, but it's also very rare that a university has its own power generation on campus. So we're kind of talking about the transition of, you know, MSU Beyond Coal obviously wants the coal plant to be done as soon as possible. And here at MSU, we're also in the transition period to thinking about new ways um, to, to, I guess, um, be off of renewable energy or clean energy, as some say, um, here at Michigan State University. Lauren, can you talk about that transition, energy transition process? Sure. So an energy transition committee was formed earlier this year and around January. Um, it consists of 25, it somewhat fluctuates, students, faculty, and staff, including um, members of MSU Greenpeace and Beyond Coal, were asked to be a part of the steering committee. Um, the steering committee has been meeting almost weekly um, to talk about the issues involving energy generation and involving energy here on campus, um, to discuss what sort of goals could be put in place and what sort of plan um, could be presented to the Board of Trustees in terms of creating almost like a campus master plan involving energy to, to guide our decisions in the future about how um, we'll think about energy here on campus. Um, and I understand that MSU's power plan is expected to reach its current capacity for steam and electricity in 2023. So do we have a specific goal to how we want to, you know, when this transition is actually going to happen? That was a big emphasis for, of course, the creating this committee, um, as well as a precursor to that. Um, we partnered with an environmental engineering firm, and they went through all of our different energy generation capabilities, and that reports on energytransition.msu.edu, available for anyone to read. So um, whether we would have the solar capacity, for example, and with current technology, wind, all of those sort of different energy energy options. Um, so the precursor to that. Um, and then you asked about... When, is there a, a goal as far as time limit for when we will transition um, our energy? So we have chosen to go the route um, in terms of not making a date and then trying to reach at that date because we just don't know the state of current technology. And instead, the committee has gone towards a plan of having um, greenhouse gas reduction goals as well as renewable energy goals. Um, because some renewable energy does um, have um, worse emissions in some areas, so that's why they chose to go separate in terms of renewable energy and greenhouse gas reduction goals. Um, those goals are available now on the website. We went through um, a vigorous um, period of going, doing town halls um, to talk to people about those draft strategies and goals and get feedback on that. And we're still seeking feedback, so um, if you want to view the presentation 
presentation or the goals um, online. It's energytransition.msu.edu, and there's a public comment form. You can submit that form as well as um, we're happy to, to come around to do presentations for groups, including we'll be doing a presentation for RHA coming up, and we do those sort of presentations. And have any decisions been made or um, any ideas as, um, as far as um, this task force that you've kind of created <coughs> with, with ideas to how to transition MSU's energy? We have draft goals and strategies, and that's the, really the only, you know, quote-unquote decisions, but no real firm decisions have been made. Um, at this point, it's really a gathering period of looking for, looking to the public and taking into account these strong opinions, maybe from um, the students here, sitting right here next to me today, as well as others, um, taking those into account with the other opinions that from the MSU as well as the surrounding community. We've really opened this up to the greater East Lansing and Lansing community because they have a stake in it as well. Um, we just really want to get to know what people like and how they feel and to get the temperature on people's opinion on this issue. So I guess that'll open up to Eric and uh, Tori. I mean, what are your thoughts? What are your goals as far as MSU Beyond Coal? You obviously want that to end now, but realistically, what do you, what do you hope can happen? Yeah, well, we definitely are looking for a no-coal goal. Um, and so we have gone to the town hall meetings, and we've spoken with the steering committee, and we actually we do have a member of MSU Beyond Coal who sits on the steering committee and who has been trying to bring our opinions and and the issue of the, the health effects of coal um, and all of those issues that come along with having the largest on-campus coal plant in the country here on campus, um, bring that to the attention of the steering committee. Um, and... On the website for the steering committee, um, it actually says that the goal is 100% renewable energy, and we are in total support of, of that goal. Um, and what concerns us about the plan and what we've seen at the town hall meetings is that there is actually no talk of retiring the T.B. Simon coal plant in the steering committee's plan, and that is very concerning to us because in order to get to 100% of anything, you can't still be burning coal on campus. Um, so 100% renewable energy means no coal, and we don't see that in the current plan. And what are your biggest concerns regarding coal? Um, really, I mean, the number one thing, at least the um, number one like quantitative thing, is the health effects. I mean, burning over 200,000 tons of coal every single year is extremely harmful on the public health. I mean, it releases things like mercury, arsenic, lead, um, NOx, SOx, and all have um, these things have been linked to things like asthma, um, Mercury, um, certain levels of mercury in people's uh, women's bodies have been linked to uh, birth defects. Um, it's it's average that um, one in six women have has enough mercury in their bodies to cause a um, a birth defect. Um, and so you know this, especially with the the relative proximity to campus um, that this coal plant is, um, it directly affects every student on campus um, and also people in the the Lansing area. Um, and that's something, you know, we try to stress is the fact that, you know, even though you might not have a direct, um, you know, direct connection to the coal plant, no matter who you are, no matter um, what kind of student you are on campus, this coal plant affects you and it is affecting your health. Um, you know, walking to, walking to class, you are breathing in these toxins. Um, and that's something, you know, we, we try to we try to get across to people um, as well as, um, you know, uh, global global climate change. Um, and just CO2, CO2 emissions in general. Um, but So what kind of energy plan would you like MSU to have? Yeah, we absolutely want to see the retirement of the coal plant. That is the plan that we support and moving towards 100% clean energy. And how do you see that clean energy? Like how You can say clean energy, but, but how do you envision that? Yeah, and I mean, that's why we're so excited for the steering committee to be here looking into options like wind and solar and geothermal for MSU solutions that have been used in Michigan in the past and we know will work here at Michigan State and things that have already been researched into. Um, and that's why we are really excited to to look towards the steering committee to give us that goal of retiring the T.B. Simon coal plant and moving towards 100% clean energy. I would just like to mention that the T.B. Simon power plant not only burns coal, but also biomass and natural gas. Mm -hmm. um, and at this point, the steering committee is not making any decisions involving a certain technology because it wants to be open and flexible with the realization that something, some technology might come around um, soon that would allow them to, to go in a certain direction using the, the current power plant or maybe discontinuing the use of the power plant, mm -hmm. um, but just being open and flexible and making sure that we stick to um, 
uh, achievable as well as rigorous um, greenhouse gas and renewable goals. Um, so those are the goals and the strategies put forth by the steering committee that are open for public comment at this time. So MSU does eventually want to have 100% clean energy. Yeah, well, eventually, um, as we all know, it's a fixed resource, so eventually coal will run out. So, um, and as far as I know, um, you know that that will still pertain to MSU as well. And do you think that's that's a feasible goal to have? To have 100% clean energy. Um, I'm really not the expert in terms of energy generation, so I really can't say. Um, but I, I do appreciate the process that the steering committee has put forth in terms of setting renewable energy and greenhouse gas goals. Um, I think it's really the best route that we can take right now, not clearly knowing what policy or technology might come out of the future. So I guess, Eric and, and Tori, I'm curious, with, with the sit-ins that happened last week in which three MSU students were um, mm -hmm. arrested, what do you think has come out of um, those sit-ins? I mean, and what kind of reactions have you gotten, and has there been any progress made because of those sit-ins? Um, Absolutely. Real quick? Yeah. Um, well, one of the, the biggest things that I've seen, or at least um, the most um, – I don't know, the most, like, recent thing um, is all the media hits that have come out of it. I mean, you know, right now on Impact Radio, like, um, we've, there was things in the State News, the Lansing State Journal, um, other blogs um, online, um, a couple of magazines. There, and the, I think just this, um, you know, what happened last week um, was the most covered event um, or, you know, thing that happened with either MSU Beyond Coal or MSU Greenpeace. Um, and the coverage on it has been great. And I think it's that event alone almost, you know, opened up everybody's eyes to, you know, this issue on campus. And uh, I think, it, you know, it made a big statement on, um, you know, <clears throat> what we're fighting for. Anything you want to add, Tori? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as part of the campaign um, last week and what happened with the sit-ins, um, they were requesting that people make calls into President Simon's office while they were sitting in, um, asking her to to please look towards human health and protect our health um, at, by retiring the largest on-campus coal plant in the country. Um, and after the sit-ins took place, um, on Friday, over 20 MSU students traveled to Cleveland, Ohio, um, where we took part in what was called um, Midwest Power Shift. It's a youth climate conference. Um, and there were over 400 students across the whole Midwest. And what we found at at Midwest Power Shift was overwhelming support from 400 students all over the Midwest um, for retiring this coal plant. Um, and throughout the weekend, calls were placed to President Simon's office, over 400 calls, including one from um, the executive director of Greenpeace. His name is Phil Radford, and he was giving the keynote address at Power Shift. And he stood up on stage and made a phone call to President Simon, um, giving the complete support of Greenpeace and of the entire Midwest Power Shift to MSU for moving to clean energy, 100% clean energy, and retiring the coal plant. Um, so what we've seen um, coming out of, of these sit-ins and all the events that happened last week, including the flash mob dance rally that was a joint rally between MSU Beyond Coal and MSU Greenpeace, and then the, the MSU Greenpeace sit-in on Thursday, has just been an overwhelming support not only from students on campus, um, but throughout the entire Midwest, because the pollution that comes from the T.B. Simon coal plant actually travels in a 600-mile radius around MSU. So people in Cleveland are affected. People all over Michigan are affected, all the way down um, along the East Coast. So this is an issue that doesn't just affect MSU. It just doesn't affect East Lansing community members. It affects everyone in the Midwest. And what we've found um, is, is we have that overwhelming support from, from people all over. So can you tell me a little bit about the difference between MSU Greenpeace and MSU Beyond Coal? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are two separate groups. Um, the MSU Beyond Coal is actually a branch of the Sierra Club, and um, MSU Greenpeace is a branch of Greenpeace USA. So they are two separate national organizations that are running um, campaigns against coal. We absolutely have the same goal of moving beyond coal and retiring the, the largest on-campus coal plant in the country. Um, and so we are working together to make sure that this, this that this happens and we get a coal-free goal. And Lauren, how can people um, be kept up to date with what's going on with the energy transition here at MSU and how they may, maybe they can voice um, 
you know, their concerns um, for MSU. Well, we just had the last of our five town halls last Wednesday, and then before then I did about a dozen modeling sessions, but I'm still open to doing more modeling sessions, and what these are is a computer simulation that um, we made up, and it's uh, has, it's basically, if you're the the energy engineer for MSU, how would you power the university? Um, it has performance indicators including um, local air emissions, greenhouse gas, jobs, um, land use, um, how much money it might cost, um, all kind of gross estimations, but still to give people an idea. So um, we should be making that online available soon. Um, we have our public comment forms available on the website, as well as people can get in contact with any of the steering committee um, whenever they like. Um, all of the meetings dates as well as the um, the meeting notes are available online so we're trying to be very transparent as much as possible and we hope that people take advantage of their opportunity to voice their opinions about what they would like to see in terms of MSU's energy future. Well Lauren Olson thank you so much for coming in as, as part of the Office of Campus Sustainability to talk about the energy transition here in MSU as as well as Tori Wong and Eric Price for coming in uh, to talk about MSU Beyond Coal as it relates to the three students that were arrested last week mm -hmm. for um, voicing their concern about the uh, coal plant here on campus. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and now for the Michigan Storytelling Segment. This week's Michigan Storytelling Segment is about an over 40-year-old um, murder mystery that is still unsolved here in Michigan. I thought it would be a good theme for right before Halloween. Um, the, this week's Michigan Storytelling Segment features Marty Link, and this is from her book, When Evil Came to Good Heart. Welcome to the show, Marty Link. Hi, Emily. Thanks for having me. So tell me about this story. Well, this story concerns the murder of the Robison family. It's the largest unsolved homicide in Michigan's history outside of Jimmy Hoffa. So it's quite the case. Um, they were killed in their summer cottage just outside of Harbor Springs in Goodhart in July of 1968. And since then, the, the file has sat pretty much dusty, at least for the last 10 years or so, um, and it's quite a, quite a file. It is, as you can probably imagine, the size. When I filed a FOIA request for the police report, it was about the size of a large television set. It's huge. Wow. And, but, and why did you want to write a book about this, this murder? Well, I, went, I graduated from MSU. I went to journalism school there. I was a police reporter out east and learned how to follow cases like this, although nothing, nothing quite so involved. But I've been interested in this case ever since I was a little girl, and I heard about it on the radio. Uh, I write a little bit about that in the opening chapter to my book. And I was seven and in the car with my parents on the way up north when we heard it on the radio. And I've sort of followed the case. I had a big file folder of, the, of newspaper articles that I would clip out. And then when I left newspaper reporting, I, I thought, you know, I'd like to read a book about that. And there was no book. So I started researching some more, and essentially, I guess I wrote the book that I wanted to read. And, and what kind of research did you have to do uh, in order to write this book, When Evil Came to Goodheart? Well, I got a hold of the Michigan State Police file, and then I also got a hold of the file that's kept by Emmett County, the Emmett County Sheriff's Office, because they are the sheriff's department that investigate, first investigated the crime. I went to Goodheart over and over again and interviewed people, um, and I read a lot of newspaper, newspaper and magazine reports on the case. So I combined all of those to what I hope is a readable narrative about what people were willing to do in order to try and solve this case and how they dealt with the fact that it still hasn't been solved officially anyway. Well, without further ado, would you be really willing to read an excerpt from your book, When Evil Came to Goodheart? Sure, I would. This is Chapter 1. It's called A Stranger Comes to Town. Some say that the village of Goodhart, Michigan, is haunted. It is not haunted in the manner that most well-rooted places can become haunted. There is no ghost here that I have seen or felt the opaque presence of, no dark wraith or caped phantom dragging chains in the night or galloping through a town on a mist-shrouded mount. 
No, this diminutive northern coastal town of well-tended cottages, ancient trees, Native American legends, and a clenched fist of locals is haunted by an answer that will not come. In June of 1968, a wealthy Detroit family, the Robisons, was slain here inside their summer cottage by an unknown assailant who murdered them while they sat at their dining room table playing a game of double solitaire. Today, the guilty person is a stranger still, officially at least. Forty years later, Goodhart still asks, who killed our summer people and why? The Robisons, Richard, Shirley, and their four children came to Goodhart every summer to find their bliss, as the saying goes, and from all accounts for a time they did find it. The family drove the 275 miles north as soon as school let out for the summer and planned to spend the next three months at Blisswood, a private development of pine log and birch bark summer homes nestled in the protective dunes alongside Lake Michigan. Like countless other downstate families, the Robisons left behind the schedule of the city, replaced its grime with beach sand and its grit with carefree hunts for Petoskey stones. Every June, when they drove away from their home in a suburb of Detroit and headed north, they also left behind the crime of the city, or so they thought. Today, fewer than 500 people live in Goodhart year-round. Most have grown weary of the endless questions about the Robisons that visitors bring with them. A brutal, unsolved murder is not what anyone would want his or her village to be known for, especially a village that owes its livelihood to the hospitality it gives to strangers. If locals do talk, the one Robison they talk about first is Susie. She was Richard and Shirley's youngest child and only daughter, just seven years old when she was murdered. That is the same age I was in July of 1968, when I too traveled north with my parents and my brother to visit for the first time what became our family summer cottage. Though my own grandfather built the cottage and named it Bobolink, he had not built it for my grandmother or for his own children, but for his sister, Maida. It was one of a handful of clear sunshine days that arrive in northern Michigan every July, and I was wearing my bathing suit under my clothes as we headed north. Though I had never been to Bobolink, the beach was already the stuff of Link family legend. In the back seat of our black Ford Galaxy, I could hear the familiar voice of Ernie Harwell on the radio, for my father was listening to a Tigers game on WJR. Next to him, my mother was going over the menu she had planned for our week-long camping trip. Without warning, there was a break in Ernie's commentary, and the car radio crackled out news of the wicked crime. A father, a mother, three sons, and one daughter. All dead, all killed with guns, the newsman said. There was more to the report. The girl, the daughter, the sister was seven years old, the same age as me. In the summer of 2007, I visited Goodhart for the first time. By then, I had been following the unsolved murders of the Robinson family unofficially and irregularly for almost four decades. In my teens, I occasionally saw Susie in my dreams. In college, I looked up articles about the crime in Reader's Index. In my first job as a newspaper reporter, I learned how to read police reports and wondered about the details in the report on the Robisons. On that first visit to Goodhart, a friend of a friend introduced me to Carolyn Sutherland, the owner of the town's oldest business, the Goodhart General Store. She was short, petite, suntanned already in May, with cropped hair that dared you to comment on its orangeness and she glowered at me through her firmly closed front screen door. This is my friend, the woman I just met said, by way of introduction. She's a writer, and she's working on a book about Goodhart. A writer, huh? Carolyn crossed her arms over her chest. Well, can you spell get lost? My computer has spell check for that, I fired back. She squinted back at me, arms crossed and leaning forward. Well, if you're a friend of Jeannie's, I guess you can't be all bad. Uh, to tell the truth, I really only met her five minutes ago. Beside me, Jeannie Moore, the friend of a friend who was doing me a favor, cringed. Then from behind the screen, a grin, the door swung open wide. All right, you better come in before people around here start filling your head with all sorts of crazy stuff. And for the next year, people around there did fill my head with crazy stuff, with their stories of compassion and tragedy, resourcefulness and craftsmanship, beauty and ugliness. Welcome, dear reader, to Good Heart.
Wonderful. And and full disclosure, my cottage is about three houses away from Carolyn's house. Oh, no kidding. And she actually takes care of my cottage when we are not there. So I definitely know who you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Brings a smile to my face. <laughs> good, good description. Um, so again, for the Michigan Storytelling segment, that was Marty Link with her uh, book, When Evil Came to Good Heart. A great story, um, a true story, a murder mystery um, I thought was appropriate right before this Halloween season. Marty, thanks so much for um, joining us for the Michigan Storytelling segment on Impact Exposure. Thank you, Emily. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.